The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. If you have a pencil, I have a question for you. How much is it worth to you? How much are you willing to pay? Go ahead and jot down a number there. Now, probably most of you are asking the obvious question, how much is what worth? What exactly are you talking about? How am I supposed to jot down a number if I don't know what we're talking about? Okay, I'll be more specific. A brand new car. Mint condition, nothing broken, no scratches, no dents. Perfect. How much is it worth to you? hundred bucks? Well, sure, yeah, why not? Assuming you, you know, there's no strings attached, you don't have to also buy a condo in the Bahamas or something like that. There's, there's no catch. Brand new, mint condition car. 100 bucks, Of course. Oh, it's a matchbox car. <laughs> Anybody want to change the number? Yeah, probably. Well, the, it, no, it's not worth $100. Oh, it's a mint condition, first edition, limited run, still in the box, collector's item matchbox car. Is that worth 100 bucks? I don't know, maybe, back and forth. The more details you learn, your opinion of the value of this thing changes. This simple question, how much is it worth to you, is obviously very closely tied to what it means. How much is it worth? Well, what is it? Exactly, that's the way it is with this little illustration with the car. That's how it is in all of life. You look at something, you try to figure out what it is, and then you determine what its value is and how much of your time, treasure, your resources you're going to devote to it. How it is. And that basic dynamic, again, the figuring out what you're talking about and then the valuing of it, devoting the proper resources to it, that basic dynamic is what's at work in our passage today in John 12. We've been working through the book of John, and last week we finished in chapter 11, Closing out the first major section of the book. Now, some, some people call the first major section of the book of John the book of signs because of how John lays out sign after sign after sign after sign for us, showing us Jesus again and again and again. And the climax of the book of signs was last week's raising of Lazarus from the dead. In that climactic sign, Jesus reveals his glory to us in the most profound way. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the Lord of life. He shows us that. uses a physical raising to illustrate a spiritual point. He is the being within whom real genuine life is found. And he raises somebody from the dead to show that. We closed out chapter 11. And many people saw that and many believed. It's chapter 11, verse 45. But not all. Many did not read the sign properly. Have you? Have you read the sign properly? Do you understand who it is? Who we are talking about here? And have you properly valued him? That's what we're moving towards in chapter 12. I'm going to read 12, 1 through 11. But then after I read that, I'm going to go back into chapter 11 to pick up some of the verses that I kind of left off last week, and I'm going to pull some of those into this week's sermon. I'm only going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 12, then we'll move backwards a little bit. 
John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Stop there. Back in chapter 11, immediately following the raising of Lazarus, we have this divide emerge again. We've seen this a number of times. Everybody was there. Everybody heard Jesus pray and claim a unique relationship with the Father, thank the Father for hearing him, declare that he was the sent one come from God down to earth. Everybody heard that. And then what did God do? Did God strike him dead for such blasphemy? Did God withhold his power from him and and in silence make Jesus look like a fool? No, quite the contrary. God makes very clear that at the voice of Jesus, the dead live, come back to life. Clear display of divine power, just like Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 21, where he said, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Displayed right here, physically. Modeling is spiritual. Jesus chooses and then Jesus gives life. That's what happened. And everybody saw that. In verse 45, many believed. And in verse 46, but many went and tattled. They went to the Pharisees, and they told on him. They saw it, but they didn't see it. They saw something remarkable, and they missed someone spectacular. Saw the miracle, but they missed the sign. And so did the religious leaders. In 47 and following, the ruling council meets. And John the writer here does a remarkable job if you're looking at how he tells this story. It's very well done as he lays out all the details for us and then shows us layer upon layer of irony here, then also in chapter 12 when we see the high priests looking to re-kill Lazarus. Just amazing. Their response, we've been totally ineffective in stopping Jesus. We've got to do something. If we, don't, if we don't stop this, everybody's going to go and believe in him, which is ironic because it's kind of the point. But it's also ironic because the belief that they're seeing is not actually the kind of belief that God's primarily after. We know, having read, the, read more, that it's often a surface belief, lacking some, general, some genuine substance to it. But they're seeing belief there, and they're really worried about that, and they want to act to stop it. It's, it's growing, it's spreading in some way or another. 
Believers fear that, and then we find out why. Their concern is not for God and his kingdom, though they want people to think that. Their concern is primarily for themselves. If the masses turn to Jesus, then this messianic fervor is likely to sweep the country, a rebellion will start, and Rome is going to come and, watch this, take away our place and our nation. And then when Caiaphas speaks to them in verse 50, don't you know it would be better for you if you do this? The focus here is on us, us, us. That's their primary concern. Primarily concerned about that. What's happening to us? We have, right right at this point, we have semi-autonomous rule here. Rome is ultimately in charge. We have a lot of power. But if things go bad, who's Rome going to come and crack down first? Us. It's going to be seen as our responsibility. They're going to come and take away our place, our authority over, probably referring to the temple, our authority over the religious worship system, our political authority, our, our nation, they're going to take it away from us. We've got to do something about this. We need to stop this. It's their primary concern. And Caiaphas, the high priest during that fateful year, shows them the way. And here's another irony. What does Caiaphas mean by the statement of one man dying for the people instead of the whole nation perishing? Clearly he's speaking of a substitute death, Jesus being substituted in, but he doesn't mean that at all like Christians mean that. He means something radically different. Instead of the nation, and in particular us, dying at the hands of Rome, we should just kill Jesus and that'll save us. Irony. In case you miss it, verse 51 God makes it even more clear. Caiaphas spoke about Rome on this level, and in the very same words, God was speaking about something else on this level. Caiaphas is speaking a lot more than he knows. John wants us to see that, probably already saw it. Jesus is indeed going to die for the nation, to save the people, save the children of God scattered abroad, to gather them back into one flock. And if you're Jewish reading this, there are a lot of flags here from the Old Testament. The Old Testament describes the time of the exile when the Jews were, were thrown out of the land and carried off into Babylon. It describes that as sheep being scattered to the four winds, scattered onto a, a hundred hills, dispersed. And then there was going to become a time, a time was coming, the Old Testament also told, when God would regather them all back. A great day of Messiah would come, the shepherd would come and would gather his sheep back. So that's what's going on in their minds as they read that. The day of Messiah. John says that the death of Jesus is going to accomplish that regathering. But he also says more than that. In reading the whole book, you realize that the, the children of God, or people of God, or sheep of God, all synonymous terms, that the children of God is a group that is defined first by election and then by genuine belief. Election and genuine belief define who the children of God are, and both of those things far transcend race and ethnicity. They transcend culture and class and gender. Election and belief define who the group is, who the children are, who the people are. So, the children of God scattered, scattered abroad, gathered back into one. They're not Jews. They're believers. Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. Male and female, both. Transcending race and culture and class. It's going to be one flock, one good shepherd. That's chapter 10 again. 
going to be accomplished through the death of Jesus that Caiaphas unwittingly sets them on the path towards. He lays out the, the path to execution in order to save themselves, and it is what is going to save the people of God. Striking irony. So Jesus is now sought out publicly, and what he does is he withdraws. He leaves the area, goes away for a little bit, and he returns just before the Passover, six days before Passover. Recall what Passover was. We first talked about this way back in chapter 1. Passover is the, the feast, the celebration, that's commemorating what happened at the end of the plagues when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God promised to bring them out, and then he acted to, to move mightily to judge Egypt and deliver his people. And the final plague was when he declared, I'm going to strike down the firstborn everything throughout the whole land. I'm going to kill in judgment the firstborn everywhere except where I find blood spread on the doorpost of a home. I come to that home to kill the firstborn, to exercise my judgment wrath. I see the blood and I will pass over that home. Delivered because they were under the blood of the Passover lamb. Who was introduced to us as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Jesus. Who's now coming up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover when this Passover lamb is about to be slain? Jesus. Think about the, the wisdom of God here. The sovereign control of life. Thousands of years ago, he forecast this, and then he brings it all to pass at just the right time when the hour has finally come. Throughout John, we see his hour was not yet come. His hour was not yet come. Now it's come. And so he comes up to Jerusalem, preparing to be slaughtered. Six days before the Passover, he's back in Bethany, which is just outside of the city. And a meal is thrown for him there in, in his honor, probably on Saturday night. So we're getting very near to the end. A week from this point, he'll be in the tomb already. Saturday night, there's a feast. Lazarus, Martha, Mary are there. And in verse 3, Mary does something unusual. She assumes the status of a slave. Takes on the job of, of washing, of anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, how a group would eat at this time is that they would be reclined on low cushions and leaning on one elbow, eating in the middle, and their feet would be stretched out behind them, practically lying down. So it would be like spokes on a wheel with all of the, the body stretched out. And Mary goes to the feet of Jesus she takes a jar of perfume there and pours it all over him. Other Gospels flesh this scene out and they mention that he poured it on his head, probably his whole body. John emphasizes the feet, the lowest, furthest point away from the center, part of the body that the slave would tend to, that's where Mary goes. And what she does there is striking. This, this ointment, this perfume of pure nard is made from a plant in India which means it was imported and was very expensive. 300 denarii. And when you realize that a single denarius was a working man's day wage, that's like a year's salary. Kind of compute that for today. What would, a, what would a laborer make today? Obviously, it would vary depending on if it's in a union or not or what kind of job, how many years experience. But thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, I don't know. Somewhere in there. Pick $40,000, let's say. This is a $40,000 jar of perfume, like liquid gold. It's more expensive than liquid gold. 
And she pours the whole thing out on him. Gone. In a moment. Head to toe. And as she does this, the whole room fills with this sweet smell of perfume. You can imagine a room big enough for 10 or 20 people to eat in. They pour out a huge jar of perfume. The whole place would smell like This is clearly a spectacle. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody can see what she's doing. And there she is. Picture her there. There she is now. She's crouched there at his feet, wiping his feet off now, not with a towel, but with her hair. Tenderly wiping them. Gently. Humble. Humiliating almost. And stupid and offensive. Wasteful to some. Judas speaks up, what a waste. Think what we could have done with $40,000, all the poor people that we could have fed and clothed. I can't believe that he's letting her do this. He has other motives. That's what he states. Jesus' response to him makes very clear, you're wrong, Mary's right. I will not always be here. You'll always have the poor. I'm more important than them. If a mere human being says that, it is the height of arrogance. If God in the flesh says it, it's just simply true. God in the flesh is more important than everyone and anything, always, anywhere. It's just simply true. And he knows, the time to honor me in this way is growing very short. The sun on my day is setting. I'm six days from the cross. And the chance to honor me in this way is passing. Now, he doesn't say that we shouldn't meet the needs of the poor. In fact, the statement almost assumes that we will. All that he's saying is here, we've got a few more minutes left in this day. Don't spend them doing what you will do tomorrow and the next day and the day after and the day after and always Don't do that. Do what you have a very brief opportunity right now to do. Honor me as I should be honored. The point that he's getting across. What he's trying to communicate. Judas has prioritized meeting the needs of the poor over honoring Jesus. And Jesus says, wrong priority. I'm going to leave the next few verses for next time. I'm going to stop there because that's the main focus for this morning. What happens there with Mary, where we're going to end up, is what we're going to be focusing on. What are we supposed to take away from this text? As I said, there is this dynamic at work here, centered around the question, what is it worth? And the dynamic is, again, you have to figure out what it is. And then you determine how valuable it is, how much of your resources you should devote to it. What is the it? In this case, who is the it? Who is he? And then, how much should we value him? Those are the two halves of this dynamic. That's the two points that I'm going to work on this morning. We're going to start with the it, with the him. Who are we talking about? Who is he? Here's the first point. Jesus is the Lord of life because, important word, because he is also the slain Lamb of God. He is the Lord of life. You've seen that a lot already. He's the Lord of life. He is the one who gives life, genuine, real, internal life. And he is that because he is the slain Lamb of God. 
The blood sacrifice that God provided and then himself killed. That's why he's the Lord of life. Because he's the slain lamb. John the writer began to lay this foundation for us way back in the beginning. Very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 4. Talking about Jesus, he says, In him was life. He contains life is what he means there. Jesus has life. What he is. Then he develops it. For instance, chapter 3. Nicodemus, he says, You're standing right here in front of me alive, but you're dead. You need to be born again from above. You need life to come to you from the outside. Here's the one standing here who is life, saying you need life from the outside. And then chapter 4, for instance, I'll give it. He says to the woman at the well, if you knew who was standing here talking to you, you'd ask him and he would give you a well of water inside of you, springing up to life. He's life. People need it. Jesus will give it. That's the argument that John's developing. And nowhere does he make that more plain than what we just saw last week in chapter 11, where he physically raises a man back to life who'd been dead for four days. He shows it right there in living color. I am the resurrection. I am the life. In me is where you find it. I will give it. You can't find it anywhere else. Me and me alone. We stand here right here in chapter 12, and we have to hear the echoes of this argument the first 11 chapters, and what we just heard. John wants us to keep that in mind. Get the same characters, the same family. He reminds us twice that Lazarus is the guy that Jesus just raised from the dead. The crowd that comes to see, comes to see Lazarus. They have chapter 11 on their minds. We're supposed to as well. Can't forget that. But we need to have more than that in mind. He's not just the Lord of life abstractly. There's another thread being developed through here. Our irony again, he's the Lord of life because he dies. We're starting to turn the corner to move towards the cross, and look how it's alluded to several times in our passage. Chapter 1, it's the time of the Passover. Verse 1, it's the time of the Passover. Verse 4, Judas is about to betray him. Getting close. Verse 7, when Jesus interprets Mary's anointing of him, He interprets it as a burial anointing. When a body had died, he would put pounds and pounds and pounds of spices and ointments on it to control the smell of the the decay. It was how they commonly buried someone. And Jesus interprets it as if it's for the day of his burial. He's saying, the day of my burial has come. Right now. And then in verse 8, he mentions that I'm about to depart. I'm leaving soon. We see those little hints. But nowhere is it more clearly talked about than on the lips of Caiaphas in chapter 11. Here's where we start to get at the the life-giving of Jesus being tied to the dying. Life coming from the dying. What does Caiaphas say there again? He says, we're in danger. The wrath of Rome may fall on us. We need to kill Jesus so that we'll live. Kill him so that we'll live. So Jesus is set up by the Sanhedrin, the rulers. Set up to die for the people. A substitute to die for the nation. Set up by them. Set up by God as a substitute to die for the people. Dies in their place. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take it away? By dying. 
I know for many of us, probably the vast majority of us here, this is very familiar to you. You know this. You've heard this a hundred thousand times. Let it roll over you again. Let your mind get wrapped around this. He comes and he dies so that the wrath of God can be absorbed in him and so that we can stand before God forgiven, cleansed, free of judgment, an object of grace, receivers of life. That's good news. The glory of God is at work here in that. None of us could have dreamed it up. None of us could execute it. We all have a sin problem. A devastating problem. We are born with hearts that turn away from God. In every way conceivable. Not to every degree conceivable, but in every way conceivable. In our thoughts, in our actions, in our desires, in our words. In all of these things we think and do and say and act and want things contrary to God. It is sin. It's rebellion against His reign over us. That's who we are by birth. Who we are by nature. And what we earn for that is judgment and wrath. It's serious. The wrath of God is coming against that. And it was coming against you and me. But God provided a way out. Provided an alternative A lamb whose blood can be slain, whose blood can be smeared over the doorpost of your life so that the wrath of God will not land on you, but will pass over you. That is good news. It's glorious. There is a shepherd who will stand in between you, sheep, and the danger approaching you. Lay down his life on on your behalf. This could only be accomplished through Christ. Because he alone is fully human, and fully God, who can bear the eternal penalty due our sin. This is marvelous and mysterious, and it is magnificent. The mercy of God. I find myself tragically taking it for granted. I can sit there and look at Him and never see Him. I can open up my Bible and read it, not understand. The Lamb of God takes away God's wrath from me. In taking away God's wrath from me, He gives me His righteousness and I find life. If He doesn't die to take the wrath, I can't live. If He hasn't died for you, if He's not death for you, The wrath of God is not passing over you, it's falling on you. I'm sure there are some here right now. I'm I'm sure there are. There always are. Some here, you've heard this a lot. But you're not under the blood. You're not covered by the Lamb's blood. You're in danger. Turn to Him. See Him like this as a Savior. He is a mighty, high, and holy God, and He is a humble, low, and meek lamb killed. Both. See Him like this. If you want help in seeing Him like this, I've talked just a little bit about this 
some things that are familiar to you from John. If you want help seeing him like this, I'd recommend picking up a book that we have out here called 50 Reasons That Christ Had to Die. The very first one is to absorb the wrath of God, what I've been talking about a little bit. There are 49 more that are worth reading. It's a short book. Copy of it here. Very short book, very thin, right out there on the table. Pick one up. It's free. Take one for yourself. Take one to give to a neighbor. Don't take one just to fill up your bookshelf. Take one to read it. It's a good book. It'll help you to see him, more of what he is. A slain lamb who died, slain means, so that you could find life. That's who we are talking about. That's the it here, the first point. We're only halfway there, though, in this dynamic, because you then have to determine, how much do I value that? How valuable is he? That's the second point. I'm going to put this in the form of a question. How much is he worth? How much is Jesus worth? Not in the sense of how much am I willing to pay to buy him. It's not what I mean. You can't buy him. You are utterly unable to earn him or merit him or do anything that deserves or obligates him to have mercy on you. This is where my analogy of the matchbox car can be dangerously misunderstood. So I need to be very clear about this. There is no merit or no earning. I don't mean to say, nor does the Bible ever mean to say, that you can buy or work to do something to acquire Jesus. It's not what we're talking about. So don't, don't misunderstand the analogy, please. What I mean to say in that analogy, and what I'm getting at here with this question, what Jesus wants us to think about is, how much is he worth? How much is he worth? The difference there. We all value him. Everybody automatically values him, either highly or very, very lowly. We all value him to some degree. The question is, how much? How much do you value him? Work towards that by by looking at what's happening in verses 3 to 8. Matthew, Mark, and John all tell essentially the same story. This is often the case in the Gospels. You have the same story told from different angles, and you can figure out what one particular author is trying to emphasize by seeing what he says or what he doesn't say. The other Gospels mention the head of Jesus being anointed. John doesn't even mention that. He focuses on the feet, probably with everything in between. This is a lot of perfume that she's poured out here. But he focuses on the feet and then how she wiped his feet with her hair. So put yourself in that culture in that room at that time. This is slaves' work, voluntarily performed by Mary. Her brother's at the table, her sister's walking around serving, which would not be all that uncommon. But there she is, away from the center, on her knees, with her face, how long could your hair be? With her face, two feet, from Jesus' feet. She's right down there. She is low, 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 in position, physically in position. And what she pours out on him is surely the most valuable thing that she had. A year's wage, all poured out on him. Why? There's no utility in this. There's nothing useful about it. This doesn't help Jesus to smell better. It doesn't prolong his life. It doesn't increase his health. There's there's nothing concrete here. There's no benefit. She's not paying him back for helping her out with Lazarus. Nothing like that going on. 
Now, Jesus does interpret this as a burial prophecy, but Mary doesn't get the cross. Nobody does. Nobody sees the cross coming. Why does she do this? Have you ever been in love? I mean in love. Have you ever been in love and done something because you had to do something that showed you were in love to that person and to everybody else, irrational as it may have been? You wanted to to shout from the rooftops, I think you're great and I'm yours. You ever done something like that? I once heard of someone who filled up a significant other's bedroom entirely with inflated balloons. Packed them in there as full as you could possibly get it with inflated balloons. You might look at that and say, that's a waste of time and breath and money. You could have done something useful with that, like gone out and bought yourself a meal or something. That, though, is useless unless you're in love. And it says something. It says, I think you're great. I want everybody to know it. I want you to know it. And I want you to know that I'm yours. This thing that Mary does is coming from her heart. It's welling up inside of her, coming out. She sees him there. She sees her brother, remarkably, sitting there alive. And something rises up in her that is not rational or useful or effective or logical. It's emotional love. It's devotion. It's adoration. Rising in her. She has read the sign properly. You are great. And I love you. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. And I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to make really clear that you are great and that I am yours. How can I do that? I'll I'll wipe his feet with my hair and I'll anoint him with the most valuable thing I own. That is emotional devotion, adoration. It's a lifting up of Jesus and a humbling of herself. Literally laying herself down at his feet. Look at him, she says. You see him like I see him, he's beautiful. I love him. And Lazarus, sitting there, Jesus, sitting there, the disciples sitting there, Judas, sitting there, sees it all, smells it all, takes it all in, and Judas sees the very same facts, sees the very same Jesus, the very same Lazarus, the very same Mary, the very same act, and he says, that was useless. What a waste. Looks behind verse 5. He's not asking a question. He's making a statement. This was a waste, pouring out all this on someone of such insignificance. Squandering this. We could have done something useful with it. This is the whole point of this story. To highlight these two attitudes. Mary and Judas. How much is he worth? That's the question. And is the proper answer... Everything. Everything I am, everything I have, or is the proper answer, something, but not that much. Which is it? What does the sign tell you? What's he worth? How much are you willing to value him? 
How much are you willing to surrender to him? But depends who him is, doesn't it? Who's sitting there? Is he Jesus, the Messiah poser? The crowd stealer? The Sabbath law breaker who just will not cooperate and do something concrete and useful that we really need, like kick out the Romans or end world hunger or fix my marriage or, or take my kids under, under his wing and order them? Is that who he is sitting there? He's the Lord of life. The slain lamb. Beautiful. Savior. Who is he? Judas spent two and a half years of sign-watching blindness. That's all that he saw was, was Jesus here, this guy who wouldn't get with the program. Mary saw somebody else. She saw what the disciple, what the leaders, what the crowds were going to cry out shortly, crucify him. She saw what they did not see. What do you see? Who do you see there? She sees the truth. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. God opened her eyes, and so she lives all in for Jesus. Everything she has, I'm all in. That's required of us too. It's not an option if you want to put half on the table and hold half back. It is required of you. Men and women, it is required of us that we be all in for Him. Sold out, fully devoted servants. doesn't mean to become a fanatic or anything like that. It just says that you lay down your life at the feet of Jesus. That's what's required of us. And it is most beneficial of us. Both. Gloriously profitable. It's a sad thing that we all hold back. It is sad but true. We all hold back. Some of us, some here, have to this point held back entirely. You're not even in the game yet. You're still outside evaluating. Please, turn your life over to Him. Come to Him by faith. He's a slain lamb who gives life only to those who believe. You must trust Him. Knowing and knowing and knowing and knowing is entirely insufficient if you never follow it by believing. Trust yourself to Him. Commit. Turn yourself over to Him. Don't hold back. All of us here, though, myself definitely included, all of us here are holding something back. We struggle to properly value Jesus and then Devote the right amount of resources to him. You look at Jesus, if you see him correctly, what's the proper amount of resources? Everything. All of it. Everything devoted over to him. All that you are, all that you have. This is profitable for you. He's a good shepherd who when you follow him will lead you to lush pasture. He'll provide life for you. May God give you grace to show himself to you. I look at myself. I'm the pastor. So my life is supposed to be like this, right? Sure, it is. And so is yours. 
My life is supposed to be like this. I'm well aware of that. And I look at myself and I realize, oh, I so consistently live like what C.S. Lewis called, I love this little phrase, what C.S. Lewis called an honest taxpayer. I'm honest that I want to figure out exactly what to do. I, I don't want to cheat anybody. I want to cheat the government. I don't want to cheat God. I want to figure out what's due, and then I'm going to pay it. But all the while, I'm just hoping that there's enough left over at the end for me to live with like I choose. I'm an honest taxpayer. If in that little analogy, God is the government, he says, figure out what you made last year and send it all in. That joke. There is no holding back. It's all required of us. For me, that, that struggle comes up with my time. I wrestle with this in relation to time. Think about it in a number of different ways, but I always find myself, not consistently, but consistently coming back to, hoping that I'm going to have enough time left over to kind of go off the clock and live like I want to, to relax, to do something that I find fun. Or I find myself trying to go on to the clock in ways that I want, at times that I want, to the amount of, the amount of time that I want. It's, it's all centered around time for me. I've been thinking about this last couple of days. Too complicated to explain. It's time for me. I don't sit before the Lord with my time and say, all of my time is yours. You tell me when I should work, when I should stop, when I should play, when I should rest. It's yours. I will follow you. Say that, but I find that I don't consistently live like that. I struggle to put all my time on the table. That's me. What, what about you? What, what's the struggle for you? See, I, I know that you're sitting there and you agree with this. If you're a Christian, you agree with this. You're supposed to live all in for Jesus. Everything devoted over to him. Of course, I've heard that a thousand times, Steve. I know that you agree with this. The danger is that you will sit there right now, that you will agree with me, maybe even feel a little tinge of guilt, that God will whisper to you, tap you on the shoulder and say, turn the checkbook over to me. All of it. I'm worthy of that. Turn your work schedule over to me, all of it. Turn your social calendar over. Turn your priorities, your hoped-for future, your dating relationships. Turn it over to me. Turn over your budgeting for the future. Turn over your job choices. Turn over your, your heart. Turn over you, all of it to me. He'll say something like that. You'll hear that and you'll say, yeah, that's right. I'm holding back in this area. I shouldn't. I know that. And I'll close. I'll give the benediction. And you'll walk out of here the same. That's the danger for you. It's the danger for me. Tuesday morning, I'm going to be thinking about next week's passage. It's funny to me how I can't remember last week's sermon. I take a file out, I put it on the desk, and I put a new file in, verses 1 to 11, and I can't remember chapter 11 at all. <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing on Tuesday morning. It's the same danger that I face 
You face it too. You're going to go home. Something's going to happen this afternoon. And a little tap on the shoulder here, gone. There's a danger there. May God give you grace to see him. What's the solution to the danger? It's not me guilting you more. It's you seeing him more. Mary's sitting there and she sees her living brother Lazarus sitting next to Jesus. She can't deny that. She can't forget what just happened. She sees something. May God give you grace to see more of him. But may you also use the means. You have to use the means to see him. Scripture and prayer and fellowship with other believers that center around Scripture and prayer. Nature, song. Use means to see Him. May God open your eyes for that. But you have to engage in that because you will walk out of here. A few minutes from now, you walk out of here. Are you going to be different? A more submitted servant. We're never going to be all, all in, as long as we walk the earth here. Are you going to be more so? I hope. Mary got it right. He's worth everything. Everything that I have, everything that I am. Be like her. Be more like her. If I boil all this down and make it really simple, total devotion is the appropriate response to Jesus. You know that. The question is, is it yours? Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.